Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Philemon, chapter 1, verses 21 to 25. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I'll be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Good morning, everybody. I always like to tell our uh, supporting churches, uh, thank you for holding the rope. You probably heard that expression before. Elisa shared um, a little bit about that. Uh, so William Carey, a very famous missionary to India, right before he was going to India, he was um, talking to his uh, fellow pastors in the Baptist Missionary Society, and he said, oh, no, I will go down to the pit, or I will go down into the gold mine, who will hold the rope for me? And the pastors and the churches that supported um, him were the ones who held the rope. Um, I always like to tell children, like, you know, when I share that example, who suffers more, the, the guy who goes in like that, you know, like Mission Impossible, or the guy who holds the rope? And obviously, it's the guy who holds the rope. Support is a word that I think underemphasizes how much suffering is needed to hold the rope. Uh, we are co-sufferers in the Great Commission, and we are very, very thankful. My family is thankful. Kahimakari Grace Church is thankful for how you've generously suffered with us. So, as Paul said in Philippians, it was good of you to share in our affliction. Let me pray before I share from the word. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, uh, I thank you for this church, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who have been generous, who have been loving, who have been encouraging, and who have walked with us. Uh, I pray that you would bless this church mindlessly through uh, the preaching of the word, through the administration of the sacraments. I pray, Lord, that their prayers would um, grow their hearts for you. Uh, but I pray, Lord, that you would um, cleanse my mouth, that I would not pollute your word. I would pray, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts uh, so that the seed might um, fall into good soil. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as a missionary, one of the most difficult questions I get is, what do you do? And it's always, well, the reason why it's so difficult is because nobody knows what a missionary does, right? There's always this kind of like overly romantic view of missions and then an overly narrow view of missions. And one day I kind of like, I, I, I won't say this, but like one day I want to say, you know what I do for a living? I build sheep hospitals. And, and, and you probably know why I would say that, because in the, the, the Gospel of John, the Great Commission is just literally three words, feed my sheep, right? And in Acts 20, we see that um, when Paul commissions the elders, he wants people, he wants the church to shepherd God's sheep. So that's why as a missionary, don't have a romantic view of missions. I'm just a shepherd herding sheep into sheep hospitals. That's all I do for a living. But let me ask you this. Um, we talked about sheep hospitals, but how many kinds of rooms do you have in a hospital? A lot, right? 
But oftentimes, a lot of people think that missionaries are just EMTs that have these like ambulances and we like find lost sheep and find injured sheep, like stuff them in the ambulance, just bring them home, right? That's all we do. It's like, but it would be really, really awkward if you called the hospital and said, oh, like, what, do you, what kind of rooms do you have? Oh, sorry, we just have an emergency room and a reception desk. That would be a really bad hospital, right? And so in the same way, missions is the same thing. We don't not only have to do evangelism, we have to do everything, everything. Missionary Paul was a missionary trying to build cheap hospitals behind enemy lines, and at the same time, even though it was very difficult, he had unrealistic and idealistic, maybe impossible, hopes about building hospitals for sheep. He wanted to do everything. At the seminary that, where I studied, um, the professor who taught me the Pauline epistles actually started with this letter the letter to Philemon, and not, the, not Romans, not Ephesians, not even the book of Acts, it was Philemon. And the reason why he said that he did this was because he believed that this short letter truly captured Paul's comprehensive view of missions in a short and succinct way. I'm a good Presbyterian minister, usually I have three points, right, three points, but today I'm just going to overwhelm you today. Five points today. Five points. And the point is not to help you remember. It's just to overwhelm you with how many things Paul wanted to do today uh, in a mission. So I, I got a short, you know, a little bit of time. Five points. I'm just going to power through today. All right? So just put on your seatbelt and buckle up. All right. First hope. First hope. First hope of Paul. Let me... Right here. So the folks over there can see me. I'm sorry. Um, um, first hope. Paul unrealistically hoped to see every person become a Christian through simple conversation. He believed that simple conversation would convince people to throw away everything, throw away the earthly citizenship for, to, in, their, in order to gain heavenly citizenship. So when Paul was writing this letter, he was on the front lines of missions. While Paul was evangelizing in Jerusalem, um, folks, a mob wanted to execute him, accusing him of blasphemy against God and rebelling against the Roman Empire. However, the Roman Empire realized that he was a citizen, and so they shipped him off uh, to Rome so that he could stand, before, uh, stand trial before the most powerful man in the entire world. And this man, this with Caesar, would determine whether he would be eaten by lions or not. And so as he was waiting for trial, he was literally chained to a Roman soldier, and he's in house arrest, and he's just waiting. He's just waiting for his trial. A nor if, if you were to ask a person in that situation, a normal person would say, oh, please, please pray that I would be released, right? That would be a normal prayer. But if you were to ask Paul, crazy man Paul, right, what would he ask for prayer? Oh, pray that I would be able to share the gospel. No, 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 Paul, Paul, Paul. <laughs> be, be real here. But that's what he asked for. If he was in front of a mob trying to stone him, he says, pray that I would share the gospel. Have a tribunal figuring out how to manage your trial. Pray for me that I might share the gospel. 
have a powerful Roman governor trying to figure out whether to execute you, pray that I might share the gospel. Be... Are you shipwrecked on the island? Pray that I might share the gospel. Are you chained to a Roman soldier? Pray that I might share the gospel. Are you in front of the most powerful person? To Pray for that I might share the gospel. That's what he asks for in the letter of Ephesians and Colossians. Paul was so hopeful about evangelism that King Agrippa was just disgusted by his fanaticism. He said, Paul, you are out of your mind. Usually people, like when you evangelize and the person says that you are out of my mind, you, you stop evangelizing, right? Like that's it. you just don't do that. But what does Paul do? He goes on the offense. <laughs> he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. I admit that Paul would be actually embarrassed to call me a missionary. You know why? Because I am probably the most skeptical and timid evangelist that I know. I, I'm just like, oh, I just, I just don't do that kind of stuff, right? And what I was, when I was working through this material, I, I just was really convicted. There was a church member um, in our church whose father was diagnosed with stage four terminal cancer. Um, her father was a non-Christian who grew up in a very traditional Japanese background and ha had no desire, no desire whatsoever to even be part of Christianity. Maybe today you feel the exact same way. When he asked his daughter to do his funeral, she was adamant of not doing a good Buddhist funeral, but to do a Christian funeral. The father was disappointed, but he said, yeah, might as well because Christian funerals are cheaper, and they are, actually. Um, and long story short, after worship, um, we had a lunch, and a 34-year-old rookie pastor like me, my assistant pastor, and this 70-something-year-old man and his wife and his daughter were all gathered around a table, and we were supposed to talk about his funeral while he was still living. There's nothing like smooth about the situation, right? And you know, as I was, you know, I, I was, I think I preached recently the sermon, and I was like, oh, okay, I, all right, I, I have to share the gospel, right? Like it's really awkward, but I'm just gonna do it. Just five minutes in and out, make it not like just, just let's just get it over and done with. And I did, you know, I just walked through it. I was like, here's the gospel. I just said, oh, but sir, Mr. Yamaguchi, it's okay. You don't have to be a Christian. Like we're just, it's just we're just doing it because I just have to you know, check the box, you know, and, and, and so after two and a half hours, we had a wonderful time, and um, I, you know, myself and the assistant pastor were about to get up, and like, okay, like, we, we, we're all good now, and he stops me and says, like, oh, so I don't have to be a Christian when I, when I do this funeral, I like, oh, no, 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 we would, we would never, you know, do that, and, and, and he said, you know, um, I, I might as well, and the, the daughter was just like, 
dad, like, you actually have to believe this, this stuff, right? Like, uh, it wasn't just me who was skeptical. The daughter was like, oh, no, 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 dad. Like, this is, uh, my paraphrase is, this is not a gym membership. You can just, like, you know, it's, that, that's not, it's like, and without, like, missing a beat, he just, like, stops, and he just looks at me and smiles and says, you know, Pastor Mark, you know, I may not look like it, but I'm a very prideful man. And when you are facing death like I am, there's just no more reason to have any pride. And uh, you explained to me that I need to pay off my debts uh, to get into heaven. Um, I, I don't have that kind of money or spiritual currency. You just told me that Jesus paid for everything. And, and you know... I don't have anything to show for, so it, it sounds about right. And, um, and I literally, he literally used this word, I would like to enter into your religious organization. And of course, I was just like, this is weird, right? And then so I, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a good skeptical Presbyterian minister, so I'm like, oh, if I talk about baptism, he's going to back off. So I was like, oh, sir, sir, sir. Like, what, what, what this means is that you have to be baptized. And without missing a beat, he says, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and my wife will join me. I'm like, <laughs> what? And then the wife's like, yes. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is household baptisms in, in the book of Acts. And literally after four Bible studies, he believes. I won't get into this, the details. And July, on my last Sunday, in Japan, July 2, 2023, Mr. and Mrs. Yamaguchi were baptized, and I've, I've gotten reports about Mr. Yamaguchi, and he's not doing well physically, but you know what his, his prayer is? I just might, I pray that I would live long enough that I might read the whole Bible. But the point here is, do you have that same unrealistic hope that a weak five-minute gospel presentation can bring people from darkness into light? Do you believe that? Paul did. That's kind of his first unrealistic hope. And that's probably like, oh, oh, of course you're a missionary. You, you would say that. But it's like, actually, I'm just getting started. That's like the warm-up. I got four more hopes. And I would say that the four more, the four, these other four hopes are the ones that I think are underemphasized and so, as a missionary. And so here's the second unrealistic hope. Missionary Paul unrealistically hoped that all Christians would enjoy each other as a family of God. He wanted not just some Christians, but all Christians to see other Christians not as terrible sinners, but as eternal brothers and sisters in Christ that they can enjoy. In verses 20, Paul says, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. In the midst of this kind of passionate evangelism, Paul is asking Philemon to do something that would refresh his heart. But for those who don't know the contents of this letter, you said like, oh, if Paul is an, a fiery, passionate evangelist, maybe he's asking Philemon to evangelize as fervently as he does. But you know, he doesn't ask Philemon to do that. We see not the outward-looking evangelist, but we also see an inward-looking counselor. Good missionaries like Paul 
are always both, outward and inward. I, I, actually, he doesn't see any distinction. In this letter, Paul is proud of Philemon. He was generous financially. He was spiritually caring for his brothers and sisters in the church. But Paul wanted Philemon, most likely an elder or maybe a pastor of the church, to do something unthinkable. In Presbyterianese, Paul is saying this, Philemon, I had a membership interview with Onesimus in Rome, and um, you know him. He's the slave who betrayed you, the slave that you hate. I was able to confirm that Onesimus has become a Christian, and Onesimus wants to transfer his membership into your church, into your membership roles, and you need to take care of him. But Philemon, you must be reconciled with Onesimus. And I write this recommendation letter with my own hand. So welcome Onesimus as you would welcome me. Paul was essentially saying this to Philemon. You, you know, I, I know Onesimus is someone you hate, someone you think is useless, someone you feel like betrayed you, but you know, he's your brother now. He's your brother. If you're not going to enjoy him now, you're going to be forced to enjoy him in heaven for all of eternity. So might as well start now, right? He, says, he kind of says that in verse 16, but that's my paraphrasing. But brothers and sisters, when we're on mission, maybe in New York and Japan, do you have that same hope in missions? Not only that more, Christians would, uh, more people would become Christians, that those who become Christians would love each other, even if they once hated one another? Do you believe that your faith calls you to an eternal love, an eternal enjoyment of one another? Do you hope for that, for your church or for yourself? Third hope, Paul unrealistically hoped that Christians would perform miraculous acts of obedience in very ordinary situations. He wanted heavenly citizens to courageously act like they do not belong in the city that they live in. In verses 21, Paul says, Confident of your obedience, I love that, Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say, even more than reconciliation. The reconciliation that Paul urges upon Philemon is socially and personally just unthinkable. It is a reconciliation that was not only spiritual painful for Philemon, but it would incur a great loss to him financially and reputationally. But Paul was urging Philemon to obey the law of Christ, the law of love. In the first century, to bear shame, to bear shame like forgiving this traitor, was worse than actual living. To bear shame, to, to bear the shame of forgiving a traitor slave was asking Philemon to throw away his life, to throw away the values of the society, to throw away this world and obey Jesus' commandments to love at all costs. In other words, the miracle that Paul wanted on the mission field was not miraculous healings or walking on water. The miracles that he wanted was a miraculous obedience to the law of love. And what actually happened? 
The result is not stated in this letter, unfortunately, but I always like, I like to bring up these three hints of what happened. First, this letter is in the canon, right? It would be really, really awkward if like, Paul sent this letter and then Philemon comes back and says, oh, I'm so sorry, I, it just didn't work out, <laughs> right? And the letter, second hint, the letter of Colossians, basically Paul blasts the entire presbytery, the entire region, that city, Colossae, and says, love Onesimus as your brother. But my favorite hint is actually outside of the Bible. It's in, our his, it's in, it's in a historical text. But um, we have an indication in a letter uh, written by um, Ignatius, a pastor at the church of Antioch, and he's writing a letter to the church in Ephesus. So Colossae is like a smaller city, and Ephesus is a bigger city right next to Colossae. And Paul uh, Ignatius is writing to the church in Ephesus, and he addresses the pastor as Pastor Onesimus, abounding in love. In other words, it is very likely that the slave, the traitorous slave Onesimus, returned to his master, Philemon. And in that church, Onesimus was accepted as a brother and eventually became, of the, became the church in Ephesus, a much larger city rather than the church in Colossae. In other words, a, the slave who betrayed his master would become a pastor. This is a miraculous sign of obedience that is more than reconciliation. As a church that continues in missions, do you believe that your church, that you yourself can perform miraculous acts of obedience? Do you, do you expect that? Fourth hope, I told you, I'm just going to power through this. Um, Paul unrealistically hoped to see his brothers and sisters in Christ, even if it was impossible and inefficient. Paul was about loving the people of Zion, not about merely advancing abstract kingdom lines. Paul said in verses 22, At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. If I sent an email to um, Exilic, this would be like a normal thing to ask. Well, please, like, prepare, like, I, I want to stay, you know, that'd be normal. But P Paul wrote this message while he was literally chained to a Roman soldier, waiting trial. Even in a, such a hopeless situation, he told the Colossian church, which was praying fervently for Paul, prepare a room for me because I want to see you right after, I be, uh, right after I'm released. Fanatical hope, impossible hope. But what's most interesting is not Paul's hope in a hopeless situation. It's the substance of this hope. He wanted to go to Colossae. It's like, okay. But if you read the letter of Romans, what did Paul want to do? Why did he want to go to Rome in the first place? He wanted to go to Rome, and then he wanted to go to Spain, to the west. But here... He gets to Rome, and he says, you know what? I'm going to do a U-turn, like a hard U-turn, because I just want to see how you, Philemon, are doing and how Onesimus is doing in Colossae. Paul was literally willing to drop the quote-unquote mission 
to see his friends, to see his little brothers in Christ. Paul was not doing missions in order to accomplish some abstract ideal or to produce merely the most impact for missions. Paul was in missions because he wanted to love the people of God, the sheep that God has given him. And he did not feel like an inefficient and impossible visit to see his brothers in Christ would threaten the success of the mission of God. Do you have that same unrealistically, uh, unrealistic hope that even if we inefficiently spend time enjoying our brothers in Christ, that the kingdom of God will advance? Or are we so caught up with optimization? Fifth hope, I told you it was going to be a lot, right? Fifth hope, Paul unrealistically hoped that the kingdom of God would advance through a broken and dysfunctional team. Verses 23, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. So missions is a hard contact sport, but it's all, there's a lot of suffering. But it's a team contact sport. You can see that in, in Paul's missionary endeavors, there are a lot of people with him. In verses 23 to 24, we see five of his teammates. But what's difficult about missions or ministry is not that it's a team contact sport. What's hard is, is that you don't have a really good team. What do I mean by that? So here there are five individuals. Three out of five are you know, pretty solid players, right? But the two are, uh, let's just say, or two or 40% of the team are people who didn't exactly hold their weight, Okay. So Mark, like me, John Mark, right? He was a guy who literally gave up on his first missions trip. He just tapped out. It's like, oh, Paul, this is too much. I want to go home and be with my mama. Like he literally, like, he didn't say the last part, but he's like, I just want to go home. And Paul was like, to Barnabas, who's this guy? How did he get on the team? And thankfully, Mark's with Paul right now, but he, Paul had to literally wait 10 years for him to be fit to play, to play the game. 10 years. The second guy is Demas. Demas was a solid player at this point, right? We, we, we get that he was a faithful teammate, but literally a few years later, Paul writes in 2 Timothy, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. In other words, Demas not only gave up his mission like Mark, but also abandoned the faith altogether. A good missionary abandoned his faith. But despite all of that, despite working with a broken and dysfunctional team, how was Paul? Was he discouraged? No, no, no. He was unfazed. He was like, let's keep going. <laughs> All right. He, he had the same faithfulness, the same hope, faith, and love because he still believed that missions can advance even with a bad team. Do you believe that as a church? As I just blew through five unrealistically hope, uh, unrealistic hopes, I, I just hope that you're like, why do we do this? <laughs> you know, Paul, you're crazy. I, I, I have no idea why you're doing this. And here's the, 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 the last thing I want 
for you to remember. The reason why Paul was crazy, unrealistic, idealistic, because he learned from the, a crazier missionary, and his name is Jesus Christ. The reason why Paul held these hopes, because Jesus held these same exact hope, hopes, but, the, rea- but, but the, the difference is, these unrealistic hopes actually became reality. Let me take you through it. So first, first hope, just a review, right? The first hope was the unrealistic hope that simple conversation would bring people to Christ. Well, do you remember that conversation at a certain well with a Samaritan woman about living water? Do you remember that late night conversation about this weird metaphor about being born again? Do you remember that like private conversation with a certain politician about the nature of truth and the nature of politics or kingdom while waiting for being executed? And do you remember Jesus' last conversation while he's hanging on the cross? He's talking about paradise with two thieves. Jesus brought those unrealistic hopes into reality. Jesus wasn't just about preaching the kingdom of God. He had the unrealistic hope of enjoying brothers and sisters in Christ. I love the fact that while he was, Jesus was doing ministry, his enemies, the Pharisees, were so concerned for him. He said, the Pharisees were saying, you know, you know John the Baptist, he, he fasted and prayed, but you eat and drink a lot. You like hanging out a lot. You should get the work. (laughs) But Jesus was like, no, I I love doing this. I love drinking and eating with quote-unquote sinners. That's what I'm here for. Jesus had that same unrealistic hope. Jesus also believed that the kingdom would advance through a dysfunctional and broken team. Do you remember Peter? He's super enthusiastic, but really, really clumsy. He just blurts out stuff like, Peter, Thomas, Super suspicious and sarcastic. He's my kind of guy. Um, James and John, the most angry people you'll ever know, bring fire upon that, you know, on that town, right? And they were like super corrupt and power hungry. Hey, Jesus, right and left seat, ours, right? And of course, Judas, Judas, faithful. Jesus, what about the poor? Remember that? But what did Jesus do? He gave all 12 disciples the same word. He gave all 12 disciples the same ability to do miracles. He gave all 12 disciples the same bread and wine. He gave all 12 disciples a foot washing. Jesus had unrealistic hopes too. Jesus also believed that these This broken team would perform miraculous acts of obedience. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will not be condemned. He who believes in me will do the works that I do and greater works. And Jesus wasn't kidding, by the way. He wasn't being... And what happened? The missionary work of these dysfunctional and hopeless disciples reached the shores of New York and Japan. Unrealistic hopes brought to reality. And this is my favorite 
unrealistic hope. Jesus had the unrealistic hope that his inefficient and impossible love for his people would not hamper his mission. So Jesus had the mission to hang on the cross, die, be resurrected, and ascend to heaven and sit at the right hand of God. Mission accomplished, right? But, you know, he could have stopped there, but he didn't. He took that impossible, inefficient U-turn and said, you know, I want to be with my beloved church. I want to be with my bride, the church. I want to love her and commune with her. So you know what? I will literally bring down heaven so that I can enjoy her. You could say that is the most inefficient (laughs) and the most impossible act of love ever but it didn't hamper his mission. As the ultimate missionary, Jesus accomplished the missionary work of salvation in his people. So let us be thankful for his work and let us have the same unrealistic hopes. Why? Because we know that they became reality. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the word and the unrealistic hopes of Paul. I pray, Lord, that we would not be discouraged by its impossibilities, but help us remember that when the, the bread is being broken and the, and the wine being poured out, that these hopes became reality and that, Father, even though today there are people who might feel like it's, it's too far out, that it's too alien, but help us remember that because that the Lord Jesus was resurrected, that we believe in a objective, unshakable truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.